All right, y'all. Welcome back to the Rabbit Hole Show. Uh, as always, we all have a story. We all have struggles. And then the good news is we are not alone. And this week, have our youngest guest to date uh, who has a very impactful story. And I uh, just want to welcome William Burleson to the show. So, William, how are you doing, bud? I'm doing really well, you know. Everything in life seems to be turning around right now. Um, just especially these past couple months, went to residential treatment um, at Hopeway eight or nine months ago. And ever since then, it's been on the upward path. So it feels really good to Amen. be uh, helping people out, really making the pain mean something um, and helping people through it has been really crucial for me. Amen. And I was at Hopeway January through April of 2019. So a mm -hmm. little uh, ahead of you there. Right. And uh, Davidson Mental Health shortly after, yes. uh, which is a part of your story that you can share. But yeah, we all go through uh, some troubling times, you know, in the dark valleys. And you know, as we both have seen, um, some people allow those times to, you know, kind of wreck them and don't use that mm -hmm. pain for goodness. Uh, but right. it's, you know, people like us and others who take their pain and struggles and want right. to use that to help other people to not have to go through those struggles that, you know, we have gone through. And the good news is that it'll help some people. And the sad news is right. there's people like us who will have to go through those hard mm -hmm. times and learn the hard way. And you just pray that they're going to make it out. I mean, exactly. Couldn't have said it better myself. It's really what it's all about is letting your voice and vulnerability connect with someone else. I was journaling a few days ago and I was writing about the things I wish someone told me, uh, mm. the things I wish I knew. And I really dove into the mask portion of kind of putting up this mask in this front and this big billboard sign like you're at a protest of who a version of yourself that you remember. And that's kind of the only thing you have left. A version, it's not only version of yourself that you remember, but it's the only version of yourself that you might be and the part of you who you want to be, but really the part of the part of you that people, other people want you to be. And you can hold up that mask for so long until your arms break. And when your arms start to break, holding up that sign, sometimes suicidal thoughts can come in. Um, suicide thinking and rationale. The first time you consider suicide, it's a very terrifying premise. Very. It's very very scary to recognize your own brain has turned on itself. It's terrifying. Mm -hmm. And you, I caught myself the first time I thought, thought about that. I was in seventh grade and I wished I couldn't wake up and it really freaked me out. I live in a nice house. I have a good family. I have all these things, right? Why do I want to die? It's very scary. Yeah. The next night and again, the next time happened again to get to the point where you act on suicide, you have, you are forced to become very comfortable with it become comfortable with your own death and that process takes time so the goal what i think we're both really trying to do is not let people get too comfortable with their own threat of suicide um because there's a window there and that's the window we're really trying to catch individuals and help them out i mm -hmm. think it's huge yeah um and that's something that my dad uh told me uh I want to say it was after I came off life support and he probably told me before, but I was just so clouded, didn't hear him. But, you yeah. know, you have that dash line in between your birth date and your death date. Yes. And what are you going to do in between? Because mm -hmm. you have two days that are 
right. you know, promised. Uh, mm-hmm. You're you were born this day, and you have a death date. You know mm-hmm. how how do you want to be remembered? Do you want people to what remember you as the drunk, the drug addict, the thief, the you name it? Or do you want people to remember you as you know the person that uh, you know when you were a kid you were kind of raised to be and your dreams and aspirations? Um, and so right. that's something that's stuck with me um, since. You know, I came off life support. How do I want to be remembered? I don't want to be remembered how I was those previous 10 years. And uh, only I can make the change. Um, right. Only I can accept uh, what it, my past is. And I can't undo my past. I can only, mm-hmm. you know, uh, make the difference going forward. And how am I going to do mm-hmm. that? Um, and how are people going to remember me? Um, and it's really fascinating. It's really fascinating. You bring up time because I think in depression and in suicidal rationale and thinking, you really lose your ability to detect times, specifically the future aspect, your version of your own future just eventually goes away. It disappears. You don't, you cannot think long-term about things. Your life eventually becomes yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that's all you really know. And it's very terrifying. When I was gambling a lot, I got into gambling junior year of high school. Um, my first bet I ever uh, made was for a hundred bucks. It hit plus 400. I was a genius. Um, <laughs> I did this all the time. It was really one of those things where I was hooked immediately. Mm-hmm. And this eventually progressed to a point where every single day I would wake up, maybe this is a day. Maybe this is the day I hit the four-leg parlay and I make it all back. And this really caused me to think about each new day is this opportunity for me to make more money. And that's all time really was. Maybe this is the day. Maybe this is the day. Maybe this is the day I want to live again. Maybe this is the day I want to get happy again. But like gambling, I was leaving my own life up to chance. Mm -hmm. I was hoping for this weird feeling to come over me and I was going to win the lottery of finally being happy again. And I wasn't working for it. (laughs) No, because statistics are you're going to lose unless you have a big pocket and you can afford to take some loss Mm -hmm. because, but then for me, you know, I didn't know when to stop (laughs) because Mm -hmm. it was that addiction. Um, and it started off with sports bets. I remember my first bet, I think, was maybe like a $10 bet. And I didn't yeah. know what plus or minus was. Um, right. And just was like, nah, what the hell? Um, Why not? <laughs> you know, I thought the plus was like, oh, they're going to win. So I'm going to take right. the plus. And when <laughs> it didn't hit, I was like, well, what's the plus? I thought that was <laughs> yeah. they were going to win, and it wasn't. Yeah. And that was when I first started betting. And it didn't take long for me to, you know, understand the lingo and how betting worked. And uh, you asked my mom, and she might have mentioned it on episode 23, but we uh, have Panther season tickets, and we would go to mm-hmm. a game, and they didn't want me to be there because I wasn't enjoying right. the game because I was so mm-hmm. into betting. And mm-hmm further down the road it wasn't even sports bets anymore because my bookie had an online casino and i got yeah, hooked me on, too got hooked on blackjack and blackjack's what ruined me um mm-hmm. because i would go up thousands of dollars in minutes seconds even right and yeah then i would lose it all in seconds or minutes because i didn't know when to stop because if i went up that much then i can only go up higher I, there was no right. thought in my brain, no rational thought. Well, if I went up that quick, that you know much, right. I can lose it that quick. You know that never happened. Right. 
So when I first started gambling, I remember the wins really felt like wins. If I would win 50 bucks, it really felt awesome. Look, guys, I won $50. And I kind of out of sheer luck and eventually progressed to the point where even the wins didn't really feel like wins. It felt like a part of a win and felt like, okay, I won 100 bucks. Now I'm one-fifth of the way I need to be for the night because I need to get to 500. And the losses started feeling a lot more like losses. Before it was, oh, I lost a few pennies, I lost a few bucks on a good Sunday night football game, whatever. And you can kind of move past it, especially when you when you have the numbers to justify a bad bet. And then the losses really started feeling like an attack on my own personality, an attack on who I was as a person. Mm-hmm. That's how deep a gambling loss felt. And the only way to get rid of that feeling and to mute that feeling of losing which is just at your core because when gambling becomes who you are when you lose it really destroys a piece of what you think you have left of yourself mm-hmm. and the only way to try to crawl back at that was to gamble more and try to get a win it was a oh, very yeah. weird paradox i mean i remember it would be like eleven fifty, and i was down mm-hmm. i don't know we'll say 500 i just i think 500 a thousand we'll just say when i was first starting out um and i would find you know just nba games that would be on last minute that i could you know bet just to make some up and this is when i was just first starting out and the bets weren't even that high i mean that's high in a you know big scheme of it kind of but um and i would just find bets i could place but then it got to where it really consumed me and i was betting on any sporting event that i could find at any time of the day um you know cricket you know you name it whatever it was and then when blackjack came into the picture it was it took over my life to where i would fall asleep gambling if i had to Mm -hmm. wake up in the middle of the night to go take a leak i would sit down on the toilet so i could play blackjack i get back in bed i'm laying in bed playing blackjack at we'll say three in the morning playing until Mm -hmm. i fall asleep wake up first thing i do blackjack like it right and i mean i was putting hundred dollar bets down every time yeah it's so where do you think the future of gambling is really going i mean i was watching uh it's this is another subject but i was watching a basketball game with my dad and this was a few weeks ago and it's really interesting how once you're not betting on things sports do lose some of their appeal when you have the gambling gene in you that wants to have action and wants to care about the 17th layup of the game because you have plus 200 odds on it yeah that goes away and suddenly the entire sport doesn't really mean anything but going back to the base point here when the commercials for these games were going on it was two bud light ad or a bud light ad a Coors light ad a fan duel ad and a DraftKings ad um and i think you can really look at gambling in the same lens that we're looking through alcohol right now this idea of a bet a week a sunday night a thursday night football bet is for some people going to be okay Mm -hmm. yeah for some people it's fine and we have to start viewing not both alcohol and gambling not as these two-sided it's either really bad or really good there's really a scale we have to talk about here mm-hmm. but i'm really worried as we progress with more gambling being legal in all the states because we're everyone's going to have a gambling app in their back pocket in the next five years oh yeah i'm really worried that kids mostly teenagers 16 to 19 as they discover their independence financially are going to run themselves into the ground with this gambling because it, 
it's a terrible, it's a twisted game when you really think about it because mm-hmm. I don't know how the gambling whatever universe is out there. You usually win it first. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, usually make, you usually make some good money at first and they have a very fascinating program, I suppose, that I don't understand that really can hook teenagers in and hook anybody in to this game that really can end up taking over your life. I think it's a very important conversation we need to start having. Yeah. Um Cause like you said, the financial piece, um, especially for teenagers, because they're still developing um, mm. and you can seriously get into some trouble with that. Um, yeah. Not only setting yourself up for problems in the future, but you're starting out already in problems with financial debt. Right. And it's tough to get out of financial debt, you know in general, but especially as a teenager. And like you said, these gambling sites, these bookies, I mean, whatever algorithm they have, it, you know, it's genius because yeah, you yeah. do tend to win first starting out. I don't know how it happens that way, mm-hmm. but then, um, you know, you start to lose and then you're, you're on that roller coaster of you're winning a lot mm-hmm. and then you're going, you're losing a lot. And it's, you know, and that's where I said, if you have the deep pockets, cool, you can do it. If, you know, that's something that you can manage, but for me, I couldn't manage it. Um, and even after I quit gambling, um, I think I made a few bets on sports games, like $50 to where like, mm-hmm. I was like, I'm not going to do any hedging or right. anything. It's just a straight bet. And if I lose, mm-hmm. if I win, great. But there was no enjoy- enjoyment for me out of yeah. just putting yeah. one bet down. Like I, I needed that rush. Mm-hmm. And the something about how many zeros are on the end of the number really dictate the rush mm-hmm. we got out of it. And it's really weird how – I mean it's just that the basic of – the basic premise of gambling is the more you put up to risk, the more you can win. But it's an idea that's so simple that we don't really think about what it can do to our brains. It teaches our brain to deal in extremes. Because the extremes of the numbers are the only way we're going to get that hit, that warm feeling in our stomach that we did something that day and make it some money. Correct. And it just grows and grows and grows. And it's such a fascinating progression of your own brain, not only gambling with money, but really it ends up gambling with your own decisions. You kind of view life as a gamble and you think about risk and rewards and other relationships and friendships as a gamble and you either win or lose and there's no in between Mm -hmm. it really makes it makes losses in life feel like failures um because a loss on a bet is a failure Mm -hmm. and that really trickles into making life a series of wins and losses which is a terrible way to stroll through life it's not Um, intended on point yeah yeah and it caused me uh so much anxiety um Mm -hmm. You know, because when you're in the hole, you're in the hole for someone who's betting on our levels, I feel like. And when you don't have the money, I had to turn to credit cards to pay my bookie off. And when you're paying a bookie via credit card, you know, the interest rates, you know, not too friendly. Um, Right. And paying rent via credit cards, um, you know, it can catch up to you. And, Mm -hmm. um, it just caused a lot of anxiety, which turned into depression. And I remember in Hopeway, because we had that, uh, the first 10 days when I was there, we had the blackout period. Right. And I was borrowing people's phones to place bets because it was during, mm-hmm. um, 
it was during basketball uh, season. Right. It was when I first got there. It was mid to end of January, so basketball yeah. was going on. So I was borrowing someone's phone and placing bets. And yeah, like just the addiction was still yeah, you know, it's there. controlling me. Mm-hmm. We don't look at and you can say the same about marijuana as well because there's this weird inclination that gambling because it is not a substance and it is not a physical alternate chemical entering your brain the chemicals in your brain that are making you feel this rush are already in your brain you're Mm -hmm. not adding anything to your mind you're just stimulating every single ounce of joy or in this case eventually nothing (laughs) with these bets And I bring up the marijuana thing because there's often this argument with pot that it's not addictive Um, Mm -hmm. because chemically it is not doing addictive things in your mind. I'm not a scientist. I sounds like all the research says that it um, is not addictive. However, from someone who's kind of been down that route, the escaping part is addictive. And there's some turning and twisting reality into a way that you can digest something is addictive about that especially when you combine it with a nice cigar or cigarette oh yeah 100 percent um and for me uh marijuana uh i mean when i sold it you know um in my addiction and throughout my struggles um it was a way for me to make extra money and then just to support my habit for free you know right um because it was i was smoking all the time um, mm-hmm. maybe one to two ounces a week. Um, mm-hmm. and thinking, looking back, you know, that's quite a bit. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and even after, um, I got off, um, you know, last year's events, the life support and got back from honey Lake. Um, you know, I'll be honest to listeners. I still, I smoked some and it wasn't to, um, you know, just to have that feeling. It was more of to help with anxiety and, right. um, everything, but it, I was able to catch it and realize, Hey, uh, you know, I'm not doing this to enjoy like a cigar, you know, I'm right. realizing like after work, I need to come home and smoke before I go and run errands right. or meet this person. Um, so, you know, eventually later on I quit, uh, smoking and that was, you know, for me, um, you know, like we're saying, everyone, you know, is different and there's that scale. Right. Um, but for me on that scale, I just realized, uh, it just, it became a habit and something that I kind of needed, um, to not escape how I was feeling, but just to kind of help me get through the day. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's the really interesting conver- conversation around pot right now that, everyone seems to be talking about in the world of legalization, the number one point for people that want to federally legalize the drug is it's medical. Um, It's a medical plant. My personal stance, I think cannabis is a remarkable herbal ally. Um, And that Mm -hmm. sounds very out there, but I really think it could help a lot of people in medical terms. Oh, I agree 100%. Especially our cancer patients, you know, pain management. I totally and this is a whole another um, you know yeah. rabbit hole that we don't need to get into probably, but yeah. I just finished the show, Dope Sick. So if anyone's looking for a show, Dope Sick, I would recommend going to watch it. But marijuana over an oxycotton or an opioid, you know, for pain management, that's just a little rabbit hole side note. But yeah. you know, it's you know for There's pain management, here. how are you going? to Correct. 
The uh, so I watched um, Dope Sick next to uh, I watched it Hopeway, which is an odd show to watch at Hopeway, and I and I watched it next to like three guys who really struggled with oxycontin addictions, mm. and they were giving me like the behind the scenes like of how it actually was the parts of the of the show it was portrayed well. Anyway, back to the weed thing. Although there, there is this dialogue about medical marijuana, and I believe in the research, and I agree that it can be used medically, mm-hmm. there is also this demographic that is not using it medically. And we have to keep in mind that the frontal lobe does not fully develop until 25. Mine's not even close there yet. Correct. Um, and I, and I, I stunted that, mine. Right. Because <laughs> I'm 31 think, right now, and I stunted it. Right. But. The I think it's so important to acknowledge that marijuana can be a recreational drug and it can be a medicine. And I think conversation right now is so polarized that one side is screaming it's a drug and one side is screaming it's a medicine. And I think we all really need to come together and decide it can be both. Um, I think once we can acknowledge that, this whole weird world of how we're navigating marijuana use in this country can really be more clear and digestible if we can acknowledge that there are these two sides to there. Because right now it's just so polarized. If it's either 100%. a medicine or a hard drug, and no one can agree that this thing can probably be both. Yep, I agree a hundred percent. Because you know I didn't really smoke uh, for a while, and then I had uh, my wrist um, problem where. You know, anger kind of took over and ended up injuring my wrist and tried to play it off as long as I could. Um, But that's when I started smoking again. And it was to help with the pain. And it really did help with the pain. Um, And I used it just for the pain uh, to manage that. And it worked. But then life kind of happened later on. And, um, you know, yeah, just life happened and got connected with some people who, uh, you know, morals and lifestyles were different. And I, you know, sort of came to uh, their lifestyle and um, one thing led to another, you know, and uh, I decided selling weed would be a, a, a good yeah. side side hustle. I mean, and it it can you can make good money, but there's a lot of risk. Make it pretty it. penny, <laughs> and it's not it's not worth it. Um, yeah, and just with you know, all the risks, you know, getting robbed, uh, just carrying right. that amount of weight on you. Um, I do not recommend it if someone's exploring that idea. Um, but I agree. <laughs> I agree with the. Um, we need to come together because it can be used for good purposes. And, uh, uh, but for me, I had to learn, you know, and the old me would not have been able to realize, okay, I'm smoking to, um, you know, I need this, you know, I'm having to come home before I go and do something to smoke, to be able to go out. Like, right. I, I had to come to that realization. It's like, I just don't need it, but for pain management and for other issues and medical purposes. Yeah. Or if someone, yeah. you know, I don't have a problem with someone enjoying it like a beer, you know, like right. a cigar, but yeah. uh, for me, you know, that's not where I'm at right now, but we're all different. So. Right. Well, it's interesting The back to the scale is one thing that we're probably really going to explore in the next five years of this country is how, because I do think it's going to be legalized eventually. I agree. It makes sense. I think, I think that will be ushered in and it is already being ushered in with these other products. It started a few years ago with the CBD 
And that is the non-psychotic uh, compound in uh, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. cannabis plant. It reduces anxiety. If you have a backache, you can rub it on there. It'll make it go away. And it works. Um, nothing, nothing twisting around in your mind, altering your perception of reality. That's the best I can explain CBD. I agree, 100%. Um, the, and now there's this thing. I went to the gas station a few days ago, and I saw behind the counter, and I've seen these for years, but it was the first time I really thought about it, is these Delta-8. Um, vapes and these Delta 8 gummies are now at a lot of these gas stations and it's really we're in the midst of this introduction in the past six months to a year of these Delta 8 compounds and again I don't know what I'm talking about and I want to preface that we're not medical doctors here (laughs) we are not medical doctors and this is one 19 year old who went to rehab's opinion but I want to let our young listeners know and anyone who wants to experiment with the Delta 8. For me, back in the day, I used to do a lot of Delta 8 before I went away. It was mm-hmm. accessible. And for me, I was able to rationalize that behavior because it was not. So the there's a bunch of compounds in THC. Um, they're all prefaced with the most of them are prefaced with the D um, for whatever reason. And there's Delta eight, Delta nine, Delta 10, Delta 11. And they all do something different to your brain. And if you're smoking a joint, pure herb, you get all the compounds. You get the mm-hmm. benefits and the cons of all those compounds. But now, because science is so wild and weird in ways I don't understand, <laughs> we can extract these different compounds. And Delta-9 is the one that you get the the version of a smoker you see in your head of bugging out and looking at a tree for too long. That would probably be the Delta in their brain. Um, that's really the psychoactive component there. And there's this message or general consensus among teenagers, specifically high schoolers, that Delta-8 is not as bad. And I agree it's not as bad. It's not going to make the tree wavy and look cooler. But something about it, it messes you up. And there's this inclination that it's less bad and not doing anything. But from someone who has taken Delta 8 and smoked the real thing, you need to be very careful about rationalizing your own intake, whether it's Delta 9 or Delta 8, because those are both drugs. Um, mm-hmm. That's just a warning from me is do not try to rationalize that, you're, that you can take a Delta 8 gummy every day before you go to school because it's just Delta 8 because it's yeah, still when- something. I agree with that. Um, and something that I've been thinking about, um, you know, cause I'm going to do a few speaking engagements at some schools, um, coming up later on this year, but, and I've been trying to, you know, thank, thanking you for coming on as our youngest guest. Cause I want a younger crowd to listen. Cause that's mm-hmm. when they, we need to catch them and really, yes. you know, pound into them what has happened, um, in our lives because, um, at that age, it's a crucial point in, um, a development, um, in the brain mm-hmm. and, um, especially with social media. Now it's different yes. from when I was in school, even 10 years ago from college. And then I guess 15 years ago from high school or 13 from when I graduated, but in decision you make, you know, good or bad, you make that decision. The next time you make that decision, it's a little easier to make that right. decision and it could be a good mm-hmm. decision or it could be a bad decision. Right. You know, 
And um, there's this, you know, the big controversy, the talk, you know, is it a gateway drug? You know, I think Mm -hmm. mental health kind of and trauma and not speaking on things. um, But also, I think it can be a gateway drug, depending on the person. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know. I'm not a doctor. Mm -hmm. But like going back to your point, you know, you do the Delta 8 or the Delta 9 and, um, you know, then, you know, the weed and then it it could become something else. But maybe it's Mm -hmm. not for me. Um, you know, just with my addiction, you know, and this is something, uh, I wanted to tell kids, you know, be careful, like for Adderall it, for me, mm-hmm. it started off with, uh, cause I have ADD and, uh, very short attention span. I'm not hyper, but just, you know, I can, you know, be talking about one thing and think right. about another thing and hence the rabbit hole show and how I lived mm-hmm. my life for quite a while. But it started off with Adderall and then the Adderall went to, um, okay, I got introduced to cocaine and right. cocaine was, is a hell of a drug. So you gotta be careful mm-hmm. and don't touch it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but then it get to a point when cocaine's not even, um, mm-hmm. strong enough and, you know, I never smoked it, but I, you know, crystal meth. I tried that even. Um, so you gotta be careful because one small decision can affect, you know, you down the road. So that's Mm -hmm. why at a young age, you gotta be very careful with something you look at, something you, you know, partake in because at that moment it might be fun, but it could open a whole can of worms for you potentially. Right. It's something we really idolize in our culture is this idea of effort equals outcome. And the thing that stimulants really do, which is really interesting, and I went through a Ritalin phase, I had some stored up when I was in middle school because I was diagnosed. I don't think I have it, but I was, I think I wiggled in my chair too much in middle school and that's just kind of what what Who they doesn't? did. Who doesn't? Though? Yeah. Well, that's a whole, no- that's kind of a, a rabbit yeah. hole, right? That's kind of like is, that, the show Dope Sick. They're pushing medicine on kids, but that's a whole nother episode or topic. But Yes, that that's a whole nother thing. Anyway, I had this Ritalin stored up, and I convinced – there was a period where I really convinced myself I can work my way out of this depression. And we see this so much. It's built in our society is if we worked towards things, we can get a positive outcome. But it really goes from before all that, which is your intentions for working and your intentions for your outcome. And the thing that Ritalin and these stimulants really make you lose track of is why you're doing it. Work just becomes work. And it becomes almost a numb sense. That doesn't make any sense. For me, it really became the point of doing good work and working hard on something Mm. is that gratification at the end of accomplishing it. Ritalin and stimulants for me took away that feeling and work was simply work and there was no gratification for it ever being done. And it's a real problem in high schools and colleges right now. And we all know this. It's something that's kind of pushed aside and ignored, but there's a real drug problem of these stimulants on specifically college campuses right now. And it's something we really need to address and have honest conversations about. Because like we said, on the other rabbit hole, a lot of kids have access to these pills. They are out there, and a lot of them are in the old drug cabinet, and it's not difficult for kids to go take some. We really need to have that honest conversation about what those can really do to your brain and what those can lead you to do down the line. Yeah, because it led me to do a lot of stuff, um, you know, yeah. and stuff I can't take back, and I don't regret uh, mm-hmm. those 
years, but I regret, you know, the things that made me do because it, I hurt people. Uh, right. But I'm thankful that it happened to me because I wouldn't be who I am today without mm. um, the events that happened. And it allows me to share with people my story and hopefully save mm-hmm. a life, you know, because yeah. if I can save one life, it's one life not lost. You know, hopefully I can save multiple. <laughs> um, but the realistic fact is we can't save everybody, unfortunately. But if I can save a life, you know, if you can save a life, um, Mm -hmm. you know, with your book that you're writing, which you can talk about a little Mm -hmm. bit later on. But um, we have to use our pain to help um, our fellow, you know, um, Mm -hmm. neighbors, friends, Mm -hmm. um, whoever we can help, uh, because I feel like we went we went through those. We were chosen to go through very Mm -hmm. difficult times to be able to share our stories to help those who Mm -hmm. will go or are going through, you know, times similar or. um, Yeah, the thing perfectly said, the idea of saving a life and the idea of stopping someone from hurting themselves or leading them down a destructive path, you're pretty much forced to reckon with the idea of what are the things in our society and culture that are leading people down this path? What is igniting these things? It's a nature versus nurture thing at its core. Are there more people talking about this because right now there's more problems in the world? Probably not. People have probably always felt this way, and now we're finally starting to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But as we're starting to talk about it, a lot of these, there's a lot of outside forces that no one really knows how to grapple with. You mentioned social media um, a few minutes ago. The suicide rates for teen girls between, I believe it's 13 and 15, or 13 and 16, the teenage girl suicide rates have essentially doubled um, in the past five to 10 years. I believe And it. it really makes you question, and there's certainly a lot of factors, but social media really comes up in this idea of comparison. And it's not really a social media issue, it's a comparison issue. And when we look at it, when we look at it through that lens, it makes it much more digestible because social media is this new extract, um, there's this new thing that no one really understands. But when you think about comparing yourself to someone else, which is really the basis of what these websites are supposed to do, we've been comparing ourselves to other individuals for the past, as far as anyone can tell. And what comparison does to people is it, what it did for me is it really made me self-conscious about how I look, how I le- how I act. I was not worried about how other people, I was not worried about how I perceived myself. I didn't really care what I thought. I was more concerned with how other people perceived me. And I think social media is really accentuating this idea of comparison and self-doubt. And that breeds the self-consciousness that's really destructive because there's the good self-consciousness of being aware of yourself and aware of your situations. But there's also the soul crushing self-consciousness where every single act you do is analyzed by your own mind and proved wrong. It's a really terrifying thing that can pop up with self-comparison and comparing ourselves to others. And to have the open conversation of the dangers of social media and on the broader scope comparison, I think are so important because we're all guilty of that. We're Mm -hmm. all guilty of that comparing and it does no one any good, but yet we log into Instagram and do it every single day. It's really fascinating stuff. 
And um, to sum that up, it's it's a highlight reel because you don't mm-hmm. see what's yep. going on behind the the wall, we'll say, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, when I would post stuff, um, you know, it was the highlight reel and right. no one saw the the mug shots, the psych mm-hmm. work. Um, you know, pictures, right. the one I sent you earlier, um, yeah. the black eyes, no, no one saw mm-hmm. any of that. It was the, yeah. the fun times, the good times, mm-hmm. but they didn't see the mask I had on per se. Right. Um, it's really interesting. You say that after I did a show a few weeks ago and they're asking about parenting and to be totally honest, I didn't know what to say. Um, I'm not a parent. I was caught off guard by the parenting questions. Um, I should have expected they were coming. But after all of that, I really got to think about parenting. And it seems from my outsider point of view, this is another reminder that I don't know what I'm talking about because I'm not a parent. But what I have to offer and what it seems like in our culture right now is when kids are born and when they're toddlers and specifically in elementary school, parents share everything. There's a guide on how to deal with the hyper kid. There's a guide on how to deal with the shy kid. There is a guide for just about anything parents could want between the ages zero and 10. Anything, any problem your kid has, it has been addressed before. And then everyone stops talking. And when you get into these teenage years, there's the volume gets lower and lower and lower. And eventually parents are only sharing the highlight reel from their child. And suddenly we're not talking about the problems that everyone's having because everyone still has the stupid, sometimes very real problems of childhood. But we talk about it back then. And as we get into this teenage years, parents only really talk about the highlight reel and the problems of your kid. The problems change, and it's important to accept that. The problems aren't he's peeing the bed. The problems turned into he drank too many beers. But if parents can have that conversation and how to approach it, because every single kid is messing up, and we pretend that they're not messing up. And if parents can just accept the fact that everyone is a little bit off, there's going to be a lot of healing instead of Mm -hmm. this weird inclination that we should stop talking about this after the age of middle school it's so interesting to me and you don't need to be as a parent you don't need to be best friends with your child but you need to have Mm -hmm. a healthy relationship to Mm -hmm. where your child feels comfortable to be like hey mom dad something's off or you know i'm Mm -hmm. dealing i'm feeling this way you know i don't feel Mm -hmm. you know um healthy about you know my lifestyle you know i'm feeling like i want it you know in my life whatever it may be you need to have that mm-hmm. relationship and have that established as a parent um, to where there's that open kind of dialogue with your child mm-hmm. and yourself. And if parents will, you know, not shelter their kids as mm-hmm. much as uh, uh, parents do or, you know, that mm-hmm. I've seen over my years, because uh, a lot of the parents who shelter their kids the most, you know, I don't want to say it's every kid, but a lot of them once they get out of the house they want to experiment and when you have not uh you know i don't want to say tasted a little bit of the you know the stuff out there you know you get out there and you know you're kind of gung-ho and just bam off to the races i mean it's really human nature is this pent up ability to lash out because part of growing up is making mistakes and lashing out 
you see it a lot. Just I just graduated high school, and you see it a lot with the boarding school kids. They got to go to boarding school for most of the year, and when they're home for Christmas break or home for spring break, they really like to have a good time, and they really like to party, and they're just a little more out there than everyone else. Mm-hmm. And it's a really great way to see that that energy of a I mean, because that's really what growing up, you have this teenage angst almost of rebelling. And it's a weird thing that has to get out at some point. And it's important that we have the conversations. If you're a parent to not try to mitigate and subtract and not let that rebelling happen because it's going to happen. It is impossible to go up. the. uh, It is impossible to go up against the giant of high school drinking culture. Correct. And another another point of this is that honest conversation about alcohol specifically comes so much before whenever they have their first drink. If your kid tells you the first time they drink or the second or the first time they really drink or the first party, that is going to be a great inclination of how open and honest they're going to be with you for the rest of their lives about this stuff. Mm-hmm. The first time really sets the tone, which means in turn, you have to have these conversations and open up a space of honesty for your child so they can tell you the first time they drink because that's going to set the precedent for the rest of the time. It's so important to acknowledge that you can't just want honesty on certain subjects as a parent. You have to want it for everything. And wanting it means cultivating an environment of honesty and truth. And it really, like all good lessons do, it comes back to setting a good example. And I'm the luckiest person ever. I have two of the best parents in the entire world um, played the biggest part ever of why I'm sitting here today talking about this stuff. Amen. Um, I mean, cannot thank them enough. And I have to just, as I do whenever I talk about this, without my family and friends, it would just not be possible. Same, um, same here. You know, I'd be in prison or dead or <laughs> if I was lucky, I would be on a street corner holding a sign up, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. if I had my freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, but that goes back to, you know, what you were saying. I remember my dad when I was in high school. You know, he's like, if you do drink, don't drive, you know, give me a car. Right. I will come pick you up. Um, I'll even pick you up down the street or whatever. But, mm-hmm. you know, don't drive after you've been drinking. Um, and, um, you know, unfortunately, you know, I never made that call. Um you know, I, you know, did drive drunk a lot and thankfully nothing ever happened bad. And I know if I would have called him that he would have come to pick me up and, you know, he would have been thankful that I called him instead of driving. But, mm-hmm. you know, I thought I was invincible. Um, right. Yes. Know, even going back to high school, it didn't, you know. Um, mm-hmm. um, but, yeah, you have to have that open dialogue and that um, just that healthy environment um, mm-hmm. as a parent with your child in that trust yeah we were talking about this before the idea of specifically when you're a teenager and kind of figuring out your place in the world you tend to think of everyone else as these side characters right yeah and you think of yourself as this main star character and nothing ever bad happens to the main character only distrust negativity and these life faults happen to everyone around me but i'm incapable of self-destructing my own life other people can do it but i'm not that type of person and what i think a big part of growing up is is realizing that you are a side character too and not only that but 
everyone else is a, everyone else thinks they're a main character and that language is very abstract and weird and maybe a tad reductive but it's true when you acknowledge that you have the ability and every decision you make can either dig you in a hole or or can get you out of it when you view it like that, instead of thinking just as you said perfectly, you think you're invincible and you think nothing bad can happen to, to you. And when you acknowledge that it can, for me, some real growth happened. Yeah. And I didn't realize that until I woke up off life support. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. it yeah. took me to that point. But fortunately, mm-hmm. I was able to wake up off life support where mm-hmm. a lot of people that I've met along the way have either not come off life support or didn't even have the opportunity to go on life support, um, mm-hmm. whether it was drug induced or, um, you know, stuff that uh, we have dealt with suicide, um, mm-hmm. you know, and that's just a major um, factor nowadays, which is I hate to say it, but um, right. it is. Uh, it's a part of life, and it's a shitty part of life because um, mm-hmm. there's so much more to live for, and you will get through that moment. But you have to reach out for help. You can't do it on your own, right. and you got to mm-hmm. do it one day at a time. You know, even if it's getting out of bed to go brush your teeth, and mm-hmm. if if that's all you do that day, you got out of bed. You did something productive. Right. Yeah. Give yourself a chance to succeed. Is really what mm-hmm. it's all about. Um, you mentioned the waking up in the hospital. I had a very similar experience. When you find yourself underneath the very white clinical lights of the emergency room, you rapidly start thinking about other ways you can live your life. It is a weird perspective of you are sitting in this essentially location that culminates all of your regret and every bad decision you've made, or at least that's what it feels like. <laughs> what points in my life landed me here and when you really sit in that thinking long enough your mindset can eventually change into what things do i have to do to get me out of here and make sure i never come back here in a healthy Mm -hmm. way um but yeah underneath the clinical white lights you rapidly start to think of alternative ways to live (laughs) 100 percent, and you know for me, it took several clinical white lights and several yeah. rehabs, several psych wards, um, you know, a few jails. But uh, eventually you'll find that clinical light to be like, what right. do I need to start doing to make my life worth living for? And some mm-hmm. people don't. Sad to say, but it's yeah. true. Um, I hate to say that, but it's true. And if you're listening, hopefully that's not you, but that is the reality. And that's the purpose of this show, the purpose of you and your book and sharing your story. Um, because today it's, it's only getting worse. And I yeah. feel like in the future, it's only going to get worse, but we can't worry about the future because the future is not promised. Um, mm-hmm. but we can only prepare for the future. Um, so with that said, um, what is your book? You're writing a book. Um, yeah. If you don't mind talking about that a little bit. I know you're still currently oh. writing it. but Right. Um, so we've talked a little bit about gambling, suicide, drinking. What mm-hmm. got William wanting to write a book? So with the gambling, drinking, and suicide, I have a lot of big abstract ideas about them all, um, about the co- – culmination of addiction, of depression, of suicidal ideation. You have lots of big ideas that really revolve heavily around emotion. 
um, not just it's a deeper emotion of real dread and real loneliness. And these are very complex ideas. And I realized pretty quickly that there was no way I could say them in conversation. I had no way of telling a story and conveying my ideas like we're doing now um, for these things that I was journaling about in Hopeway. They just simply didn't really make any sense. But part of me still thinks they make sense. And even though I couldn't share them audibly, I figured I could write them down. So I started writing them down. I have these deep ideas and these deep messages, and they're still very abstract. And I weave them into this story that really mirrors my life. In a way, it's fiction. Um, all the names are different. The settings are different. There's, But every theme and every layer really comes back to a point in my life. I like to think most of the characters are just little pieces of me, some of the pieces I hate, some of the pieces I love. And learning to, I'm about halfway done with the book. Um, half of it is edited, ready to go. Oh, and nice. it's really, it's everything that I've learned that I don't know how to say yet, but at mm. least I can write it. Um, so that's the story I'm trying to tell. I want to finish it in the next few months. Um, and then we'll see what happens with it. It's called Diet of Bread and Crackers. Diet of Bread and Crackers. Yeah. And you're halfway done with it, edited, ready to go, and working on the second half. Yes. I have an amazing – I've been living at um, the lake with my grandparents, best grandparents in the world. And I chat with them every morning about where I'm going to take the book. And then I go write. And then at night, I chat with them about what I did that day. It's been a really, really great summer um, spending time with them. And, and a lot of growth, book, I bet. Tons of growth. I started fishing, too, um, which if you told me a year ago that I get into fishing, I would have not believed you. And I found out really quickly that fishing and some fishermen might not want to hear this is really an advanced, advanced form of meditation and sitting in your own thoughts and at times sitting in your own boredom and frustration. When you can sit in your boredom and frustration of not being able to catch a damn fish in a weird way, it teaches you a lot about yourself and it teaches you a lot about patience. So I Same with hunting. That Exactly. Exact same premise. And spending time with them has just been amazing. They've taught me so much and have really inspired me um, to get these words down on the paper. Um, the It's interesting how the fishing and writing have lined up. I realized I could never catch a fish if I didn't go fishing, and I could never finish a book if I didn't write new words. <laughs> you cannot edit a blank page. So I've learned lots of lessons in the first part of writing the book and spending time with them. It's been the best summer of my life, and I'm so grateful. <laughs> That's awesome. Cause you were, cause all this kind of came to head, what, less than a year ago, didn't it? Or yeah, like eight or nine months ago, it was December 12th was the night I had these slippers, my psychological decline, um, worsened to the point where I couldn't wear shoelaces and I had these old pair of slippers and I declined at this point where I really felt nothing. And the mask that I was holding up broke and I really didn't know who was underneath. And that was a very terrifying premise mm. to know, to be, to look in the mirror and not recognize the person you're looking back at is really what it felt like. And I was about to hop out the window and probably break a few legs, but I, a few legs, break a leg, but didn't <laughs> really think about it because I knew I was going to die anyway. And right before yeah. I, hop window i saw these pair of slippers which was really the culmination of my pain because that was really the first sign of my decline and 
for I picked the slippers instead of the window and went and talked to my parents about it. And that was on December 12th and went to Davidson Behavioral Center, then Hopeway after that. And then a week later, I went back to high school and I started journaling in Hopeway. And I never thought I'd be a journaler. And that really transitioned well into Semicolon, which is a blog I write. Um, it's just a series of stories about my time before, uh, after, and during treatment. And that has really been a therapy tool for me. It really holds me accountable and honest with my story and keeps me on the right track. And the book really does that because there's these characters that I'm really invested in. And because the characters are a part of me, I'm becoming a lot more invested in myself, which is a really great feeling. It finally feels for so long, I just kind of existed. It really felt like I was just waking up every day and existing. And for the first time writing this book and spending time with family and really becoming a person I want to be, and this sounds very cliche, but I really feel like I'm finally living. And it just feels like such a blessing uh, to be here. And I don't know why I went on that tangent, but I'm just uh, very happy. It's, it's the rabbit hole show, and I'm, I'm thankful. I'm thankful <laughs> to have you here. And, uh, you know, if you had jumped out that window and um, had, you know, uh, gone in, you know, to that pillar, yeah. as you talk about in um, the champagne problem. So if anyone's mm -hmm. listening and wants to go hear, you know, more of his um, story and uh, through depression and um, high school and kind of up to the night where he is going to jump out the window and seize the slippers, um, go check mm -hmm. out champagne problems. Um, that, that, that was your first podcast or first time kind of that was sharing the first one. This is my second. Yeah, well, this is my second time. <laughs> Well, you did really well on Champagne Problems. So everyone go check out Champagne Problems. Um, I really appreciate that. Thing. Yeah. Because, um, you know, tonight it was just a conversation um, yeah. of, you know, just struggles and allowing our listeners to kind of hear from, uh, you know, a younger uh, guy mm -hmm. who just graduated high school and has dealt with depression, uh, you know, and some addiction. And a lot of kids are dealing with that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I'm 31, so I'm closer to your age than some of our listeners, but right. we have a lot of, I'm sure, parents who listen to this show and how do they deal with their child who is dealing mm -hmm. with depression um what warning signs do you know mm -hmm. they look out for um if you you know don't have a child who's open opening up to you how do you look for that how do you initiate that conversation because uh, right. you don't want to have the regrets the what if you know i should right. have seen this i should have said something you don't want to have that because uh, you know if the uh worst happens you know suicide you know, you don't want that to happen. So you got to look for those right. signs. And he talks about that, uh, some in champagne problems and, uh, just being a high school kid. So everyone go check out champagne problems and they're a good, uh, podcast kind of dealing with the gray matters of alcohol, I would say. Um, yeah. and so he shares, you know, his story in depth. Uh, I think it's, there's two parts. The first one's like an hour mm -hmm. and the second one's about 30 minutes. So it's yeah. definitely a quick listen. Uh, you know, it's an hour and a half, but it, it doesn't feel like an hour and a half. Um, <laughs> tonight was just us talking about kind of topics and struggles that, uh, you know, high school kid to someone who's dealing with depression and addiction from gambling to drinking, to drugs, to you name it. Um, and, 
you know, kind of what we're doing now. You know, I got the podcast mm-hmm. trying to, you know, figure out the career um, aside from the podcast. And then, you know, William uh, just graduated from Charlotte Latin, um, which is a rival of mine. I went to Covenant Day. <laughs> um, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, went to Covenant Day and graduated in 09, but have some great buddies who graduated from Latin's uh, very, mm-hmm. you know, respected school here in Charlotte. And, uh, you're going to Walford. You go in when in yeah. September? Um, because they always start a little uh, later, didn't they? I go on the 27th, so a little less than a week. 27th. You ready? Um, I'm so excited. I'm just ready for for it to be the 27th. I'm so yeah. ready to go down there. And yeah. one question I have that I'm probably I'm sure that you've thought about at least. I don't know if you've been asked it, but um, for me, when I was in college, it was about partying. You know. Mm-hmm. I feel safe to say your college experience is not going to be about partying Um, or you might go to parties, but it's not going to be in the sense of I'm blacking out. I'm, you know, I'm getting left up tonight, whatever it may be. The things that I was doing in college. Um, How are you prepared for that? Um, Because I'm sure there's going to be temptations, you know, people saying, oh, one won't hurt you or whatever. Um, How are you preparing yourself for you know, that college experience going into your freshman year? It's something I've definitely thought about a lot. I mean, you have this college of what college, the perception of it has become, which is really a factory for partying and drinking. And it seems like academics have really come second to that. And that's not a critique on the college system. That's just the way it worked out. So for me to go in there, I think I'm definitely going to have fun and go to parties. It's just I'm always the responsibility I have to care to myself is really having that intention on every decision, specifically regarding substance and alcohol is really think about the why. And so that's really been the thing I've worked through in therapy is thinking about the whys and thinking about if I want to do X, what will it be to accomplish? And I'm just excited to get down there. I know a few guys going down there and I know some guys that are already there and it seems just from the perception I have so far of the people I've met very uh, supportive of this whole journey. So I'm eternally grateful from the taste of that, the taste of that I've gotten so far and I'm excited to see where it goes next year. Good. And I'm always here if you need a phone call or someone to talk to. Uh, Cause like we were saying earlier, you know, every decision you make has an effect good or bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, for me, the podcast is, it's almost, it's a weekly therapy session, you know, for me and just hearing uh-huh. other people's yeah. story, but then also, I don't. I can't go out and mess up per se. You know, I can't go get arrested. Right. I can't make um, live my life like I'm invincible. And mm-hmm. I don't want to. But the podcast also kind of holds me to my or right. I hold myself to a higher standard because if I'm, you know, talking about my past and struggles and how I've overcome them, I can't be living mm-hmm. that way out in the right. world. Um, that double life the, standard. So the um, book has done the exact same thing for me. The it has really caused me to hold myself accountable because some of the characters that are kind of modeled after my past behavior, if I ever find myself thinking like them, I can catch myself pretty quickly. Um, so that's cool how both of our means of sharing and means of creating have really helped us in our own personal lives. I think it's really a testament to how powerful this message can really be. Amen. Um, before we go, what advice or what have you learned over your journey 
um, you know, and struggles um, in high school. And then at Hopeway Davidson uh, Behavioral Health and while writing this book uh, that has helped and shaped you to who you are today, that our younger listeners or parents who have younger kids might be able to um, listen and be like, all right, cool. This is something I can, uh, you know, talk to my younger kid about or a younger listener. All right. That's something that I can start practicing. There's a lot in a story like this, when you have the decline and the recovery and the process after such, there's a lot of emotion and a lot of deep thoughts that intertwine throughout that whole story. And there's a lot of feeling, but I think the feeling that really comes to the surface and is shared the most would be empathy. I remember my first day at Hopeway, there was a guy called me over. We were at lunch, we were sitting outside and he calls me over and asks why I was there. And I told him my, the synopsis of my journey and he tells me 20 years crystal meth. And it was the moment that I was surprised by the fact he'd done crystal meth by the first 20 years that I think was a really instrumental part of my healing process because it was that moment that set in stone the rest of our relationship and the rest of our friendship. And I would look back at him and it was two weeks later and we were eating for our 13th day in a row outside together. We really became friends. And I looked back to that moment and thought, I almost discredited your essentially word because of who you once were. And if we can look past people's in this perspectives, um, if we can look past their past, it is really a twisted form of empathy in a really strong, powerful way of connecting to others and feeling their pain, but not just feeling their pain in a way of sadness, but feeling their pain in a way of hope because everyone that's sharing their story lived. We're a hundred percent on days living. And when you can take away that message of empathy and relating to people, it really opens you up to a whole nother way of thinking. I think Davidson in particular was like, I've compared it to like restarting a computer. It was just a complete shell shock of what my life was. And those expectations were totally shattered. And at first it was a very terrifying concept, but it eventually developed to the point where I could relate to the people in the green scrubs next to me. There was a long time where I felt very isolated in those scrubs or there's tan or green. I felt very alone. And by the end of my journey, I felt like it was our damn team uniform. And I think that, that I think that's what it's really all about is looking at the patient next to you and looking at the person struggling next to you and looking at people like us next to you and realize you're not alone in this battle. Depression has a fascinating way of convincing you you're alone. And when you can empathize with others, it is a fascinating way to feel like you have someone on your left and right side. And I think that's what it's all about. I hope we can be the people on other people's sides. Amen. Um, And, you know, for me, I was on team orange, you know, for a little bit. Um, thankfully you didn't have to go down, you know, join that team, but everyone in there has a story. Um, not everyone in there is a bad guy. You know, there are some hardened criminals in there, but not everyone's a bad guy. Just like everyone in a a psych ward in a rehab, it's not a bad guy or a bad girl, you know, just a few bad mistakes. And that's all your neighbor, you know? can be a few bad mistakes Mm -hmm. away from being in a bed, you know, at Davidson Mm -hmm. behavioral or, um, the psych ward up at, you know, uh, atrium, you name it. Like Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what race you are, you know, how rich or poor you are, what zip code, what school uh, you go to, it can affect anyone. It doesn't matter 
It doesn't, it's not uh bias. It'll yes. attack anyone if you allow it to. Mm-hmm. And it's easy for it to attack you because uh, your mind mm-hmm. is very strong. And uh, mm-hmm. that's something I've always said, you know, not every thought that pops into your head is your thought. And it took me a while yeah. to figure that out. But once I figured mm-hmm. that out, I was like, okay, now I can mm-hmm. decipher which thought is mine and which one is a lie. Yes. I'm into that. I've been right there with you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, real quick, where can people listening um, kind of follow you and get updates on your book and also, uh, you know, semicolon your blog? Yeah, um, you can get updates on my book on Instagram when it gets finished up. I'll, I'm private on Instagram just because I'm a little it makes me it lets me pretend that I'm more secure, even though it probably doesn't do anything. Um, but I'll accept you. <laughs> and uh, for the Substack, which is that journey of kind of the before, after, and during treatment, just Google Substack William Burleson, um, and the collection's called Semicolon. It'll be the first thing that pops up. Uh, so, yeah, that's what I'm up to and where you can find me. And what was your Instagram handle or name? It's William B. Burleson. Cool. So, y'all go follow, and I'll post some updates as well. Um, uh, when the book comes out and where y'all can get it. Um, cause that'll be a book that everyone needs to read. Uh, that means a lot. Thank you. Yeah. Um, cause someone shared, um, a while ago, the semicolon with me. And so I started reading it and then reached out to you. Uh, mm-hmm. and it took me a little bit because you were private and I was like, I don't know if this is him. I can't really right. tell by the picture. Right. And, and then I think I, found you on facebook i just started sending you a message i yeah. was like all right hopefully he'll see one of them because yeah. you know his story kind of resonates with mine and uh definitely for the younger audience uh your story yeah. needs to be heard and you know for any audience um the story needs to be heard and you know that's the platform for this podcast we all have a story mm-hmm. we all have a struggle or struggles at times and you know the mm-hmm. good news is you're not alone you just have to be willing to share with a trusted source mm-hmm. don't go share with everybody but someone you trust share you know and for mm-hmm. someone your age thankfully you had that relationship with your parents to where you could go mm-hmm. and say hey i need help um mm-hmm. and it doesn't fix it overnight but it starts the process and you had the acceptance right. um right and for me I got the, you know, I finally came to terms with acceptance when I was sitting in jail because that's when I had total, um, I had, I couldn't do anything. Uh, Mm -hmm. I had to have money on the books to make a call. I couldn't just, you know, walk out the door um, Mm -hmm. and say, I'm going to go, you know, on a walk. No, there was certain Mm -hmm. yard time you could go out there. I, you know, had to trust the parents were going to deal with the lawyer and all this stuff just that's when i really understood what acceptance was mm-hmm. um wish it hadn't had to happen that way but i'm kind of glad it did because it's part of my story and made me who i am and um, thank you for coming on taking time out of your evening to share your story and just be vulnerable especially at age 19 it's not easy uh when i look back to where i was at 19 so thank you thank you i mean i think it's a really special thing to have this opportunity to talk about this stuff and it's truly people like you that make it happen and make this possible and you are 
in the grand scheme of things, a mental health talk, the rabbit hole show will be one of the pioneers of one of, of one of these topics. And I think it's so important and it's so inspirational to build uh, platforms around these things. And it's such an honor and a blessing to be able to contribute to that in any way I can. Um, I'm so glad we've gotten to know each other uh, through this whole process. I think you'll really be a role model for me uh, for a really long time. So thank you for not just the show, but for being here today is really means a lot so thank you yeah and thank you for going and uh talking to your parents on december 12th so i could have the opportunity to get <laughs> to know you and uh hear your story and for you to share your story and then for us to build this relationship um right. you know who knows maybe i'll come down to wafford for a football game oh yeah um, do it that'd be a ball yeah yeah, because I had some buddies who played basketball down there uh, when I was in college. Yeah. So I spent some time at Walford. Um, but we'll have to have you back on um, down yeah. the road, you know, how your college experience is going. Um, Love to. And just uh, talk more about the book experience, you know, once that's been Hell published yeah. and everything. Um, yeah. So, again, thank you for coming on and sharing your story. Um so for all of our listeners, go check out William Burleson, uh, follow him on Instagram and check out his blog. And um, also go subscribe uh, to Spotify, Apple Podcasts for the Rabbit Hole Show for uh, weekly episodes uh, from guests who are just being vulnerable like William and sharing their story um, and stories from people who you wouldn't suspect have had issues. So um, Apple Podcasts and spotify go subscribe follow and then also the rabbit hole show all underscores on instagram uh, i'm not the best at uh, putting out posts and stuff on uh, instagram but uh, there are uh, posts out there and i'm gonna try and get better at that but again thank you william we'll have you back on and thank you for all of our listeners um, for tuning in this week and hearing william's story and then also just want to give a shout out to my dad um, this episode will come out in two weeks but today on recording april or august 22nd is my dad's birthday uh, so just want to shout out and thank him for all he's done for me um, in my struggles because uh, a father uh, you know there's good ones and there's bad ones and he's been a blessing in my life and I wouldn't be here without him. So I just want to thank him and wish him a happy birthday two weeks uh, from the date when listening, but on the day of recording. So thank you all again for tuning in. And William, thanks again just for your vulnerability. It means a lot, brother. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Sweet. <laughs>